All right, good morning, church. We're going to study the word. If you'd open up your Bible to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter uh, 55. Psalm 55 is where we're going to be, and I'm just going to read this whole thing, and then we'll dive in and get to work. God, listen to my prayer, and do not hide from my plea for help. Pay attention to me and answer me. I'm restless and in turmoil with my complaint because of the enemy's words, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down disaster on me and harass me in anger. My heart shudders within me. Terrors of death sweep over me. Fear and trembling grip me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, if only I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest. How far away I would flee. I would stay in the wilderness. I would hurry to my shelter from the raging wind and the storm. Lord, confuse and confound their speech, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they make the round on its walls. Crime and trouble are within it. Destruction is inside it. Oppression and deceit never leave its marketplace. Now, it is not an enemy who insults me. Otherwise, I could bear it. It's not a foe who rises up against me. Otherwise, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion and good friend. We used to have close fellowship. We walked with the crowd into the house of God. Let death take them by surprise. Let them go down to Sheol alive because evil is in their homes and within them. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. I complain and groan morning, noon, and night, and he hears my voice. Though many are against me, he will redeem me from my battle unharmed. God, the one enthroned from long ago, will hear and will humiliate them because they do not change and do not fear God. My friend acts violently against those at peace with him. He violates his covenant. His buttery words are smooth, but war is in his heart. His words are softer than oil, but they are drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God, you will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and treachery will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So this psalm teaches you how to turn to God and how to be the church how to turn to God and how to be the church. So it's obviously, this psalm is marinated in affliction, in hardship, in suffering. You think about suffering with me just as we get started here. So when it comes to suffering, the question isn't, will you face hardship? Of course you will. The question is, when you face hardship, where will you turn? That's the real question. When you face hardship, because it is certainly coming if it's not here already, when you face hardship, where will you turn? One of our student ministers, Allison Matthews, she posted an article about the struggles of teenagers this week, and I read it and benefited so much. It was so insightful. Here's a portion, an excerpt from that article. Today's teens are the first generation of teenagers to be more stressed than their parents. Anxiety that once started in middle school now starts in elementary school. Add to this the new CDC report about teenage girls reporting record levels of sadness, suicidal thoughts, and sexual violence, and it becomes clear that this next generation is struggling. 
They need our help, our love, and our attention. It was a really helpful article. One of the things that I took away is it was a helpful article not just for teenagers. It was a helpful article for everybody because the article put its finger on cultural pressures that exist and are acutely felt by teenagers, but not only and limited to teenagers. There there are cultural expectations that are placed upon us in, in our culture that militate against our flourishing. Some of the things that we need the most our culture is suffocating our ability to find those things. And even as people of faith, to find them in the presence of God. So this psalm is here to teach troubled people how to pray. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands of how many troubled people are in the room, but the reality is you walk past a lot of them on your way in, and maybe you were one of them. So if you find yourself in trouble, how do you talk to God? Three things troubled people can say to God. Number one, I need help. I need help. You you hear the request and really that statement, I need help, is underneath every verse in this entire passage. One of the most common traits, so just backing away for a second, talking about how do you interpret ancient Hebrew literature? How do you interpret ancient poetry? Where, you know, in, in English poetry, a lot of it's, at least the way I grew up, a lot of the poetry was, well, you, you find the rhyme schemes and you, you see you know, the story that's being told or the way that something is described. Well, in ancient Hebrew, it's, they didn't rhyme the words, they rhymed the ideas. And one of the ways they rhymed the ideas is they would take two lines back to back and they would put them in a kind of parallel relationship that, that's often called parallelism. And there were different forms of parallelism that were used in in Hebrew literature, one of the most common forms of parallelism in your Bible is called synonymous parallelism. So if you're taking notes, this is the, this is the nerdy moment in the sermon, all right? Synonymous parallelism, what is it? Two lines where the second line restates the first but using different words. So you see that in verse one. Listen to my prayer, do not hide from my plea for help. And you can break it down even further. So. If you see this, uh, you see those words, God, listen to my prayer. There's line one. And then line two, do not hide from my plea for help. And you see, listen and do not hide are two different ways of saying the same thing. Listen to me, don't hide from me. But the second part is also parallel. Listen to my prayer and do not hide from my plea for help. In other words, when you look at the parallel structure there, you learn that according to Psalm 55, what is prayer? a plea for help. That's not all prayer is. Prayer is worship. Prayer is thankfulness. But prayer is also you running into the presence of God and saying, I'm dying. I need help. I'm struggling. I'm barely breathing. Listen to me. Don't hide from me right now. Help me right now. So there you see that in your notes. Note the parallel to my prayer in verse one is prayer equals pleading for help. You, um, you ever bumped into the prayer police in the church? There are prayer police in every church. 
And you find them when you pray the wrong thing, something you weren't supposed to pray, something that wasn't, you didn't theologically dot all your I's and cross all your T's. And here they come parachuting in the prayer, right? They overheard you a moment ago. You said something, it's like, okay, so everything else is great, but we just need to talk about the, the second minute of the prayer that you, or maybe even worse, I don't know if you've been in this situation where you pray, you're praying in a group, you pray and the next person prays and their prayer is a disguised correction of your prayer. It's like, wait, are you, are you even talking to God? Why, why don't we just open our eyes and you just tell me what you were trying to say? It feels like you're trying to actually adjust my prayer because what you said when you started praying is, God, thank you that we don't just bring our request to you like a grocery list, but we serve you because you're worthy. Right? What just happened is you just got prayer policed. You just got adjusted, right? The, the psalmist, here's one of the wonderful things about this psalm. It's not embarrassed of saying, I've got problems. Right out of the gate, from the word go, God, listen up, I'm in trouble. Do the math with me. The psalmist uses I, me, and my 27 times in 13 verses. Is that selfishness or is it just faith finding its way toward God? <laughs> 27 times in 13 verses, I, me, my, and relates 11 hard personal experiences in the span of eight verses. So we're eight verses in and he's already ticked off 11 fingers of things that are really difficult right now in my life. Author Paul Miller writes, prayer is God getting involved in the details of my life. Prayer is a moment of incarnation. Prayer is God with us. So you see those descriptions? I hope you still got your Bible open. Look in verse four. Look at the descriptions. My heart shudders. Terrors of death sweep over me. Fear and trembling grip me. Horror has overwhelmed me. What's going on? You're getting a theology of prayer. God's telling you how to come to me. And what's the point? Prayer is what happens at the intersection of your real life and the faithful God. Not, not my fake life. Not my keeping up appearances life. Prayer is what happens at the intersection of what's real and the faithfulness of God. Well, one of the reasons I love the Psalms is you hear God telling you in no uncertain terms, you can say verse four kind of stuff to me. That's, that's par for the course. That is totally right and acceptable. And notice that his, his requests David's request in this psalm, carry the force of imperatives. Just let these words jump off the page. God, listen, are the first two words. Don't hide from me. Pay attention to me. Answer me, right? So faith learns how to say, I need help. The second thing faith learns how to say is, this is hard. This is hard. And, and we overhear David's anguish we overhear restlessness, turmoil, pressure, enemies, disaster, and on and on. He's bringing his real life into the presence of God. David is not too proud to plead. You ever find that you're too proud to plead? I, um, I remember a moment a couple years ago, we were having a men's conference here at Brook Hills and there were several hundred guys and uh, I just felt like, what if we prayed for one another and just allowed guys who are really struggling, 
with something, to own up to that and just say, I'm really struggling, I could use some prayer and I'm gonna come forward. And so I just invited, whoever's struggling, um, you don't have to name what those things are, but just let's come forward and let's pray for each other. And I don't know, five or six guys came forward. Um, what you don't wanna do um, is shame people into coming forward. You know, there's ways, maybe you felt altar calls where it's like, this is like low-key manipulation. Like you're just trying to pack, you're trying to pack the floor. You know, so basically if you set it up in this way, this is kind of one of the, sadly, one of the tricks in the tool bag is, you know, if your life's not perfect, then you really should be seeking the Lord and coming forward to pray. And then you almost feel guilty that you're staying in your seat, right? Um, That's not what I wanted. So I really didn't say anything, but part of me wanted to say something. What I wanted to say is to look out at the hundreds of other guys and say, I don't believe you. I I don't believe this many hundreds of guys that only five of us are barely hanging on right now. David's not too proud to plead. What's he after? You see in verse six, it becomes clear. I said, if, if only I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest. How far away I would flee. I would stay in the wilderness. I would hurry to my shelter from the raging wind and storm. It's like we've stumbled onto this guy's journal and we've opened it up and now we're overhearing the depths of his agony and his own soul. Um, how many of you are are calm and logical when you lose something. Okay, and so the rest of you, how many of you wouldn't describe yourself as calm and logical when you lose something? Okay, there you go, okay. So maybe you're not calm, you're not logical until you remember where it was, right? But there are moments where if you're not calm and logical when you lose something, uh, there are other people around you. Maybe you didn't, maybe you realize I've lost my passport and you're in the airport or whatever it might be. And if you're not calm and logical, odds are the moment you realize you've misplaced something really important, everybody else can tell you've lost something, haven't you? Right? The compassionate people nearby are like, listen, can I help you? Do you, do you need me to help you find something, right? Your, your passport or your purse or your firstborn child or some, something. Clearly, you have lost something and I'm here to help, right? And then... But again, sometimes then you remember where it was and you're just washed over with a sense of relief, right? With the author here, if we had the the privilege of being close enough to Psalm 55, you'd see somebody who looked like they lost their passport and they're in another country at the airport, right? He is searching high and low. You want to pull in close and say, listen, can I help you out? Let me help you find what you're looking for. And what he's looking for is peace and shelter. He's looking, verse six, rest, verse eight, shelter. And so here we move from what the psalmist feels to what the psalmist sees, verse nine. So he feels restless, he feels turmoil, but what does he see? Verse nine, he sees violence and strife in the city. Um, If you've ever studied the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, you know that uh, the people of God have moved back to the city of Jerusalem and they feel threatened by uh, opposing forces on the outside. This is supposed to be a walled city, but the wall has been broken down for a long time. And so we're rebuilding the walls. And as the walls go up, they realize that there are problems not outside the walls, but there are enemies among us, which is a whole different problem. You can't just lock the front gate. This is, they're here. They're already here in, in the city walls. You see the phrases here in verse nine? Strife 
inside the city. Verse 10, they make their round on its walls. Verse 10, crime and trouble are within it. Verse 11, destruction is inside it. Verse 11, oppression and deceit never leave its marketplace. So it's not an out there problem, it's an in here problem. And all that trouble that's churning around in verses 9 through 11 seems to be connected to one particular hot spot. And what's that hot spot? There's a source, and the hot spot is, of all things, David's closest friend. And it's like David finally finds ground zero of where all the conflict and trouble is coming from in his life. And he, and he looks and he literally says, you? It's you? He says, we've, we've walked with the crowds into the presence of God together and yet you're the one who's at the bottom of it all. Verse 20, my friend acts violently against those at peace with him. He violates his covenant. His buttery words are smooth, but war is in his heart, so there's flattery. His words are softer than oil, but they are drawn swords. You ever felt betrayed? Jesus experienced the deepest of betrayals. Oppression. You ever felt oppression? You ever been mistreated? You ever experienced abuse? No one should be more eager to stand with those who are mistreated than Christians. No one. You read through the psalmist, so often the psalmist gets to the bottom of the problem and he says, at the end of the day, it's a human being who's destroying my life, who seems intent on my destruction. Hebrews 13, one to three, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing this. Look at verse three, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and remember the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. You talk about a culture of empathy that the gospel is meant to create, a culture of compassion and care and running to the aid of those who are oppressed. So many of the Psalms, they're under this particular distress of saying, God, I'm under attack and it's him. And I can't, I can't, I don't have the wherewithal to fight against all my, Psalm 3. All these enemies all around me and they're all saying, there's no salvation for you. We got you cornered. There's no way out for you. And sometimes you even hear the psalmist when his back is completely against the corner in the wall, right, back up against the wall. And you overhear the psalmist basically praying that God would cause harm to the ones who are causing harm to him. You talk about prayer police dropping in and saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, time out. We don't ask for God to take people out, right? We're not asking God to bump people off. Well, don't tell Psalm 69. Don't tell Psalm 137, right? It, it happens in multiple places because they're up against tremendous enemies. And so they start praying what's called technically imprecatory prayers, prayers that breathe out threats against other human beings who are trying to take you down. Imprecatory prayers beg God to intervene, to make it stop. So just so we don't go run off the rails with that statement. Here's, let me just set that in a, in a balanced way. It's important to remember the imprecatory Psalms, Psalm 69's not there 
to, as a biblical justification for me being petty and vindictive uh, in the daily affairs of our lives. It's, it's possible sometimes people who, who read the Psalms to just kind of go, uh, go Old Testament on everybody. And it's like people who have experienced the forgiveness of God are capable of forbearance. People who have experienced Christ's forgiveness don't walk through life extracting a pound of flesh for every insult and offense that's caused to me. That, that's, not, that's not the life that God has prepared for us, shaped by the gospel. But, but again, that's not what David is talking about. He brings in three big words in this text, violence, oppression, and deceit. And what are those three? Those three are technical terms. That's basically the essentials kit in the Old Testament for doing deep harm to another human being. To doing deep injustice to another human being. You're gonna need violence, oppression, and deceit. So when everybody, oppressors always walk around and they had those three tools in their toolkit. And David says, here they come and they got all three tools and they're about to do it. Help me, save me. And so the prayers are personal prayers. They're civically oriented, nationally oriented. The beautiful thing is, God invites us to bring our hardest things to him. Again, the reality is some of the people that you walked past this morning and greeted, smiles on both of your faces, are barely hanging on barely making it into the room, wondering, does God even care? Does he walk into real places like what my life is right now? Let me ask you this question. Do you talk to God about what you're feeling, saying, and seeing? Verse two, what you're feeling. Verse six, what you're saying. Verse nine, what you're seeing. Faith learns to do that, to speak to God, to say, I need help, to say this is hard, but faith also says, I believe. I need help, this is hard, I believe. And there's a beautiful kind of progression of the psalmist. He's, God is taking him somewhere. He's not just wallowing in this place, right? He, he moves from I am, verse two, I said, verse six, I see, verse nine, I call, verse 16, I trust in you, verse 23. God is taking him. This, this, this psalm is a people mover. It is, it is moving this believing person who trusts in God. It's hard to read the psalms and conclude that God wants to speak to him as if nothing is wrong in our lives. Or as if the sole purpose of prayer is to kind of review the finer points of theology in the presence of God. Or to review the finer points of theology, even worse, in the presence of other people where we're basically flexing in front of other Christians and disguising it as prayer. There's a better way. I love this quote from Paul Miller in his excellent book, A Praying Life. He says, we know that to become a Christian, we shouldn't try to fix ourselves up, but when it comes to praying, we completely forget that. We sing the old gospel hymn, Just As I Am, but when it comes to praying, we don't come just as we are. We try, like adults, to fix ourselves up. Private, personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. In order to pray like a child, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. So if you, if you want to fall out of the practice of prayer, What's one way to start? 
If you want to fall out of the practice of prayer, start by nurturing the idea that God doesn't want to help you. Learning to truly pray doesn't involve mastering a thousand religious protocols. I find that statement so freeing. Learning to pray doesn't involve mastering a thousand religious protocols. Because you can kind of think of, as a Christian, you know, praying is like walking into a field of landmines. You just don't want to set them off. Or, or, or also the metaphor, it's like walking in and you've got paperwork with tons of fine print and you don't want to send the wrong form before you send the right form, right? You don't want to send form B before you send form A and now the whole process is broken down, right? You don't, and so prayer can be that way. It's like if I don't follow all the rules and I break the rules and I ruin the whole thing and then God doesn't even answer, God doesn't even respond to me, right? You, in other words, what are the rules? You got too honest. Yeah, you went and broke protocol. You, you asked for help too soon, you, you submitted form B before you submitted form A. You, you needed at least a paragraph of adoration before you're allowed to sound like you're dying, right? If that's how your prayer life died, Psalm 55 wants to welcome you back. <laughs> Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in the New Testament and, and what did he say to do? What did he say to bring? What petitions did he allow them to bring? And the answer is everything, everything. He says, well, let's start by remembering when you start praying that you have a father in heaven. And so you can be a child in the presence of, that's the implication, right? You can be a child in the presence of the father. You come to the father as a child comes to its father. And then you say, may your name be hallowed May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So every prayer that wants the earth to look like heaven. And then Jesus says, then start acknowledging the reality of your sin. Forgive us our trespasses. You can do that on a daily basis. Ask for the sin that's going on in your life. Ask for it to be forgiven. But you don't have to stop with that. Then you can start asking me for daily bread. You're gonna need it every day. Daily bread is the kind of, it's, it's the stand-in in that verse for all the human essentials that you need in order to survive. Oxygen, relationships, right? All of that. Ask me for daily bread. And then stop the enemy in his tracks. Deliver me from evil. He's on my one-yard line. Please help me. Rescue me from the power of evil. We can ask for all of it. The Puritans in the 17th century, the way they unpacked the Lord's Prayer was they said, if you went back into the Old Testament book of prayers and you identify every single petition, you can fit every petition in the book of Psalms in one of the seven petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It's not a single thing that was ever asked in the Old Testament that Jesus says, you can't come bring that. It's, it's, that's too real, that's too ordinary, you can't bring that. No, Jesus, his seven petitions pretty much covered the universe. <laughs> you think about even last week, we got an update on Turkey and the crisis that's going on there. And we translated, transitioned from that update to praying and, and we prayed about what? We, we prayed for the hope of their people. We prayed for their help. We prayed for their salvation. It's not like we only prayed for the salvation. We, we prayed for salvation and for help. Resources 
and for hope, right? It was, it was all in there. And we're all in with partnerships to help with all of those things, right? We, we care, we're concerned about the whole person. The gospel is, is the story of how God sets the world to rights. Things went off the tracks in Genesis chapter three and God is gonna set the world to rights through his son, Jesus Christ. The debt that we owed to God that we could never pay is paid for at the cross of Jesus if you trust in him. The adoption we've long awaited is finalized through the work of Jesus Christ. The enmity between God and and us is over. We've been reconciled to him. And not only that, but that sense of human isolation that we can have in this world. God says, you come to me, you get me as father, you get brothers and sisters. You're brought into a family, into a place of belonging. Trust in Christ. He gives us all things, all good things, all the things we need to flourish in our salvation and in our lives. Here's the realities. We repent and believe. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. We become his. And then we make our way to the waters, Kyler did this morning. And we testify and say, guess who I belong to? I belong to Christ. And once you belong to Christ, once that happens, what's next? Well, then you have all these assurances from the scriptures that say, now that you're in him, Christian, there isn't a moment in your life on your worst day where God isn't utterly, irreversibly for you in Jesus Christ. And that seems to me to be the gear that David is finding in this passage. I call to God, verse 16, and then he starts preaching to his soul. The Lord will save me. I complain and groan and he hears my voice. I'm not talking to the ceiling. I believe he's here. I'm not God forsaken. God is listening. Though many are against me, he will redeem me. And now he starts reviewing his theology. But he's reviewing his theology not out of protocol, but it's prompted by genuine faith. God, he says, the one enthroned from long ago, that God will hear and will humiliate them. God, in other words, God will right the wrongs in his time. Let me ask you this morning, do you pray as to a God who is enthroned? Who is omniscient? Who is faithful? So often, when our ancestors of the faith are groaning in prayer, the truths about God that kind of rush in like first responders, the truths that come onto the scene are the truths about how big God is. He knows all things. He's sovereign The God who hears our prayers is the sovereign ruler and reigning king and the gospel reminds us this God is for us. And David doesn't even have a full picture of that the way that we do on this side of the cross. And yet, David is kind of fortifying his soul in the face of hardship so much so that he doesn't just look upward in faith toward God, he looks outward. He calls his fellow brothers and sisters and he brings them in to exhort them Here's the point, if you're taking notes, when God begins to strengthen David, David begins to strengthen others. So David's been talking to God directly, talking about all my troubles and all my problems. And then God is fortifying David's faith. And what's the first thing that David says when the passage goes church-wide, what's the first thing he says? Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord. Who's he talking to? You. He's looking out at the church, he's looking out at his brothers and sisters. Cast, you, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never never allow the righteous to be shaken. So the first corporate 
kind of church-wide exhortation when he breaks the fourth wall, right? The first church-wide exhortation is cast your burden on the Lord, just like I was just doing right there, right? But then the first, so there's an exhortation, but there's a promise. The first promise he extends to the community of faith is he will sustain you. He will sustain you. He will, you see the words? He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You might say, well, I'm shaken. You ever live in that contradiction? You read a verse that says, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You say, well, how about this righteous? Because <laughs> I feel very shaken right now. Here again, ancient parallelism is in use here. So line one and line two mutually interpret one another. The parallel statement for he will never allow the righteous to be shaken is what? See it? He will sustain you. In other words, by shaken, he means to say, God will never allow the righteous to be shaken so as to be beyond redemption, so as to be beyond recovery, beyond healing. That's why Christians can grieve without apologizing. It's not like, oh, it doesn't sound like faith. It sounds like, you're, it sounds like just tears. Yeah, yeah, it's tears. Christians can grieve without having to apologize and explain it to everybody. Yeah, Christians can grieve. That's a reality. Grieve deeply in this fallen world, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. Again, you see God moves in on the soul of the psalmist and he so strengthens him that David is then enabled to turn around and do what? Strengthen other people. If you've ever been strengthened by um, another believer, maybe you're walking through incredible hardship and suffering and trials in your life and somebody pulls up alongside you and they just minister words of encouragement and comfort to you. And the interesting thing is so often if you pause and talk and look at that person who's just been bringing encouragement to this person's life and you back up from there into their past, what are you gonna see? Suffering and hardship. So that person's walked through suffering and hardship and experienced the hope that's found in God and turning to him with what's grieving us. And now later on down the road, God has worked it in such a way that now it can be stewarded, our pain can be stewarded for the blessing and healing of others. That is what's called church. Being the community of faith. Don't just cast your burdens on him, offer God's promise of grace to others. Offer God's promise of grace to others. So after exhorting his brothers and sisters, David then looks directly at God in verse 23. God, you will right the wrongs. And then what happens? He, he closes with this resolution that demonstrates the sustaining grace of God. But I will trust in you. That's David just saying, as we close this thing out, my time of prayer, God, you're gonna do the saving, you're gonna do the redeeming, I'm gonna do the trusting. You do that job and I wanna do this. I wanna lean on you and you need to hold me up. You bring down the proud in your timing as you see fit. Here's what I intend to do. Keep my eyes on you. Keep trusting in you. You wanna see a soul that's held in the strong grip of God's grace? It might be the person who feels totally weak 
unable to sleep, vulnerable in the raging storm, but nevertheless is saying, I will trust you. That's, that's faith. I need help. This is hard. I believe. And then, I just love that. The psalmist turns around and says to the church and says, cast your burden on the Lord. Cast your burden on the Lord. 